coming up in this podcast, submarines, iron ore, Dale Alcock, Canva, KPMG, the WA economy, Bustleton, and our special report on energy and the future of coal. Welcome to Mark My Words, the weekly podcast from Business News, with Mark Pownall and Mark Beyer discussing the important business news and data stories from Western Australia. Welcome to our weekly podcast and welcome Mark Beyer. Mark, uh, first up, a massive change in our future defence posture, but nothing much for WA from it. The big announcement from Canberra during the week, and in fact from Washington and London, was Mm. this joint announcement that Australia is teaming up with the US and the UK to, well, initially evaluate the development of nuclear-powered submarines. Yes. Um, So this is to replace the deal we had with France, that they were going to build some conventionally-powered submarines for us. Um, so look, you know, interesting from a global strategic perspective, um, but buried in the announcement was the news that the government has finally decided to keep the uh, maintenance of the existing Collins-class submarines in Adelaide. Um, this is called full cycle docking, uh, where you basically you pull in the Collins-class subs, you basically cut them open and sort of rework everything internally. Yep, flush them uh, out, flush them out. vacuum, yep. Now, this is work that Western Australia has been uh, aiming to get for at least two and a half years. There's been a campaign going, and the federal government put it out there. They said, you know, we're evaluating the best place to do this work. Because the subs are based here, right? This is a really crucial point. Um, the, both the Premier, Mark McGowan, and, and the Chamber of Commerce and Industry, they've been very vocal on this one as well. And they said, look, there's a, a clear logic in co-locating the maintenance of the submarines with their operations. Um, you know, well recognised as best practice, you know, much more efficient, you get knowledge transfer and so on. And then the fact that WA has the infrastructure in place, in particular the Australian Marine Complex down at Henderson, um, which is just about a stone's throw from Garden Island, yep. where the submarines are based for operations. Uh, we've got a highly skilled workforce, um, so you know, ticked all the boxes. Um, Adelaide has been constrained in their capacity to do the work, and Adelaide, of course, is getting a lot of other defence contracting work. Um, they're clearly the big winners out of this. Mm. Um, you know, now, Western Australia gets some work out of defence contracting. Um, Sismec, for instance, they've got a big shed down at uh, the AMC. They've got a joint venture with Lewison. Uh, to build some other vessels. Um, Austal has built patrol boats and so on. But this is all pretty small stuff compared to the, the scale of the work that's going to be done in Adelaide. Well, let's just talk about that stuff first and we'll get back to the, the defence stuff, the, the broader picture in a minute. But, um, you know, I, I find this historically a whole fascinating thing. I mean, WA only really has a shipbuilding industry because effectively we had a cray fishing industry and... And that morphed into a ferry business, a ferry production business, which which we know as Austal, and there are a few other producers around that. Um, and then, of course, some of that has become uh, servicing the offshore oil industry. Um, so, in some ways, we are quite late to the party, and very much, I think, uh, as a res- in, in respect of that, quite innovative and modern in our shipbuilding capacity. Um, in a country where manufacturing isn't uh, a big thing we've actually created a manufacturing industry here, which is quite a remarkable story in its own right. Then you've got this more historical version of manufacturing, which is uh, particularly Victoria and South Australia, 
where you had a subsidised industry around cars, motor vehicles and defence. Um, now obviously the car industry has been wiped out um, as a result of a pull, pulling out of all those subsidies. Um, and from a political perspective, do you really want to, you know, pull the rug out of defence in a place like South Australia, which, you know, but compared to WA, doesn't have as much going for it, to be honest. Um, and there's another element there. South Australia was a defence, uh, was sort of created a defence industry, I think, from the Second World War, because it's just a very, very long way away from anybody's ability to bomb it or knock it out. Um, now, I don't know that that's still the case, but it's still strategically a long way from everything. So and I can of see... That, that's why, operationally, submarines are not based in Adelaide. Yeah, right. They're, they're based here, closer to the Indian Ocean. Exactly. So I guess I could look at it both ways, and as a West Australian, I'd say, put the two things together. From a political perspective, nationally, it's a no-brainer because Adelaide, um, the South Australian government's a Liberal government anyway, and, you know, there's plenty of... The you know Scott Morrison's got feelings about Mark McGowan and the borders, so this is one way of showing it. But I also think there is a little bit of a strategic. If you're just thinking nationally, there is a strategic element about keeping your base and your uh, maintenance and building abilities in separate places potentially. Anyway, I'll throw that around. The bigger picture is we just pulled the rug out of some deal with the French. Um, you know, and now we've got another equally enormous deal, which I must say, they're not saying they're going to buy nuclear subs off the shelf anyway, which they're going to go and make something fresh and new that may be a mixture of a British design and American technology in weapons and propulsion. And I kind of go, oh, we're going to go through this again. Well, I, there's I, a lot I of work to be it. done. I mean, starting with the fact that Australia, of course, does not have a nuclear industry. Yeah. So getting the nuclear fuel for these submarines uh, is you know, one of many uh, issues that needs to be evaluated. Despite, despite being months. one of the world's great uranium producers. That's right. <laughs> yeah, well, look, you know, I guess that's, um, a, that's, that's something that can be dealt with as we go along. Um, but, I mean, I think the strategic uh, issues that have arisen over the last couple of years have driven this. And I'm, I'm intrigued by the whole process that suddenly we're in a much tighter alignment with the UK and the US in this, what's it called? AUKUS is the, mm -hmm. the new strategic alignment, which I presume they're hoping will expand and start embracing some, other, some of our other neighbours in it as well, do you think? Well, New Zealand, of course, has a ban on all nuclear vessels coming into their harbours. So New Zealand can't really participate in this one. No. Um, look, it's interesting because it ties in with some other things we'll be discussing in a moment. Um, one, uh, from an industry perspective for WA, uh, this was one of those great opportunities to try and counter the boom-bust cycles that we go through yep. with resources. And we're going to talk about iron ore in a minute. Uh, but then secondly, I think the broader strategic perspective is the growing concern around China. Yeah. And a nuclear-powered submarine is a fast-moving vessel suited for operating in, out in the ocean, um, so deep sea ocean, uh, not in sort of coastal environments, which is what the French submarines were better suited for. Yeah. So it, clearly that, that broader strategic... Cons uh, yeah, context. so we're more tapping into the, the broader 
defence uh, and the military of the US and to a lesser extent the UK. Um, yeah, no, absolutely. And look, Mark, just another point on that. And again, I, I don't want to talk down WA, but, I, but looking at it nationally, you know, you're right. Having a better defence uh, sector here does give us. I, I think there's some very close alignment to the resources industry in, in, in you know, like we talked about the maritime stuff, the engineering, and you know, look at the minerals energy industry now and its automation and software. There are some strong links, but you, if you're going to have a defence industry here, you're going to have this boom bust where every every few years the mining industry is going to come and steal all your staff. You won't be able to get people in here because you can't afford accommodation. They can't find a place to live. You know, there are some reasons why you go, why, why would you inflict that upon yourself? Why not put it in Adelaide where really, unless the government pays for things, there isn't the possibility of much of a boom or a bust. You know, the wine industry is not going to do it and Olympic Dam on its own isn't enough. So, you know, maybe there is some, you know, more sustainability in that approach. Um, I say that with great deal of caution because I'd obviously much prefer to see the kind of smart industry that defence is coming here. But I do think we have a fair bit of it already and we'll just have to make do and be really good at what we're good at. Um, all right, let's move on anyway. Uh, iron ore continuing to slide. Uh, I didn't pick up the latest number, but it was around 120 US or so yesterday or the day before. Uh, and it got up as high as 240. So we're talking about a halving of the iron ore price within a few months. Um, you know, this is this is still strong price, but very different territory. And the latest update, um, UBS, uh, big investment bank, put out some um, updated forecasts during the week. And their commentary was that the correction has happened faster than they'd been anticipating. So they've chopped another 10% off their iron ore price forecasts. Uh, latest number was 118 US dollars a ton. Uh, that's the benchmark price. Uh, as you say, it's come off a long way and that's flowed through to the share price of the big iron ore producers. Um, UBS actually has put a sell. They've already had a sell on Rio. They've put a sell on Fortescue Metals Group. Um, so look, still good companies and still making tidy profits out of their iron ore business just not at the level that they had been. Uh, there's a few factors in here. Uh, the fall away in steel production in China, and the, which is obviously is the, the main driver of demand, and that's tied in with the slowdown in the property market in China. Um, which slowdown sounds like a understatement, Mark. Sounds like it's getting us in quite big trouble. Yeah, look, there's, I think there's a whole range of factors there. There have been government stimulus that had been a big factor. Yeah. Um, but now I think a lot of concern around the, the financial capacity of businesses there. Well, look, and, I, 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 look a reading, and again, I, this is just outside reading, one business there, the world's biggest housing construction company, you know, in huge trouble, one and a half billion people apparently have bought off the plans with that company. You know, I mean, can you imagine that here? You know, when, when it happens here in Perth and 300 people have bought off the plans and you know the hoo-ha that goes with it. Can you imagine? And from a national perspective, even though it's not a democracy, they still occasionally have to deal with the fact that people get pretty annoyed when they lose their money. That's um, Evergrande, I think is the name of the company. That no, sounds right, yeah. Yep. And look, just touching briefly, you know, there's been a really big shift in the posture of the Chinese government mm. in its dealings with the private sector. Um, so Jack Ma 
one of the richest people in the world. There was a big crackdown on his internet business. Um, well, he's effectively disappeared from public life, hasn't he? Well, yeah, he's, he's come back in a small way. Um, but there's a whole range of people, a lot of celebrities um, yep. who'd had a high profile. So, so clearly, a bit too much private sector wealth uh, coming to the fore in China mm. yeah, in terms of what the governing party wants there. And that's flowing through to business. Um, and yet, it's still our major market for our biggest export commodity. Yep. So it's something that we're really going to have to get our head around. Uh, interesting looking at this, uh, we spoke last week about the state budget and the forecasts built in there for a substantial reduction in the iron ore price. Um, these latest forecasts from UBS, now they're actually below consensus, um, but they're now saying that the price will be even lower than the state government has budgeted for the current financial year. Right, which was what, 61? Oh, well, 66 is the longer term Sorry, view. Sorry, apologies, yeah. Um, but they were looking at $121 a tonne in the current financial year. Right, okay, which is already there. UBS is saying it will go below that. Yeah. So that, of course, then has a big impact on royalties for the state government, um, as well as profits for the big miners and so on. Yes. So implications very broad in terms of how this pans and, out. And bonuses for executives, Mark. Indeed, yes. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Uh, well, look, and again, we still haven't seen supply ramping up from Brazil either at this stage, have we? Uh, no, look, they've got some issues there. Um, they're still dealing with COVID and, and other problems, so that's slow. Yeah. I mean, the, the more the, the medium-term caution is more around Africa and yeah. the Simandu project in Guinea yeah. and things starting to happen there. But they've had a coup. They have. <laughs> there are, I think people are still trying to work out what that one means yeah. exactly. Are the coup leaders going to accelerate development or hold it up? Yes. Be the question. Yeah, got it. Um, but that's the longer term concern there. Yeah, but again, you know, you, it's it's it, uh, the, the the issue around a coup in a country like that is, you know, how much are you going to you going to invest billions in a mine if you're not sure what the government of the day is and and the long term security around that, and it may be different if China has direct involvement with that versus you know just being Rio etc. But nevertheless, even countries have to be careful where they put their billions, um, you know, even Chinese investors in a place like Western Australia have been burnt and, you know, we're, we've got the least sovereign risk. So, you know, yeah, some good questions there. All right, Mark, uh, now, well, it's kind of related. We've spoken to Dale Alcock about uh, the housing construction boom. Yeah, look, I caught up with Dale and had a, a really interesting, wide-ranging discussion about his business. So, of course, he heads up ABN Group, uh, second largest home builder in Western Australia, uh, below BGC. Um, but it's, it's a broad group. They're in construction and finance. There's actually 20 different businesses under ABN Group. Yeah. Uh, recently moved into a, a shiny new headquarters in Leaderville. Yeah. So they've got 900 staff operating out of there. So yeah. um, it's quite a big business, isn't it? Nice little boon for all the cafes on Oxford Street yeah. and that neighborhood. Um, but it says something about bringing them together about the sort of the scale and significance of that business. Yeah. Um, and, you know, for people that might not know the history, a, a classic story. You know, Dale was a tradie um, who then sort of moved into a management role and now owns and runs the business. Yeah. Oh, but uh, let's be clear, he had his own business and then he joined forces with Webb Brown Knees, which was an equal, probably not as big, but a slightly different segment of the market. Is that right? And then those, those two businesses became... Well, they, they backed him. Yes. Um to set up 
Dale Alcock Homes. Oh, right, okay. So they were sort of founding partners to a degree as well. Yeah. Yeah, right, okay. And, and just another historical perspective there, Mark, you know, they're the second or second biggest, depending on how things go in this town, they're the second or first... Uh, home builder in the state, right? Again, with BGC. Yeah, typically number two. Yeah, and for years, those two were the biggest two in the country because the rest of the country don't have these big house housing construction firms um, like we do here, just a slightly different way that we do things in Western Australia. That's true. And look, Dale's business, he moved into Victoria uh, some years ago and now got a very substantial operation over there. So that's brought some nice diversity to his business because we've had five years here in WA of a slide in housing construction volumes, yeah. um, whereas Victoria had held up in a much more healthy manner. But of course, the big issue that he and everyone else in the industry is dealing with has been this massive surge in activity. So Dale gave me some updated numbers on his business. Number of housing starts in WA doubled last year, yeah. you know, which is just extraordinary. So big thin year there, right? financial year yeah. that's right they did a bit over 3,000 housing yeah. starts um, and then Victoria um, offers more solid base that grew about 30% as well um, as he said um, and this you know came fundamentally from federal government stimulus post-covid but you know, too much stimulus the industry is overheated yeah. and everybody is really struggling he said it's the most difficult constrained market he's ever experienced yeah, right. uh, that's really saying something. And, you know, he would have been the guy going there not even a year and a half ago saying to the government, you've got to give us this, you've got to give us this, otherwise we're stuffed. And here we are, you know, 15 months later, 16 months later. Oh, it's the way. It's kind of fascinating, isn't it? I mean, at least the state government has pushed out that uh, the deadline for uh, using the stimulus funding in house building because that at least takes some of the pressure off, right? Yeah, no, look, that's the case. Um, but, yeah, clearly, um, look, a nice little quote from Dale... Um, it's like two grenades of sugar hit our industry and it went nuts. <laughs> so, uh, you know, one of the things, his business has always been a big investor in apprentices. Um, but they see themselves as the largest private training group in the construction industry, um, certainly in WA. That actually, their numbers sort of fell away over the past few years as building volumes also fell away. So they're doing a lot to crank up their apprentice training scheme, yep. uh, getting more women involved, um, and for the first time, a really concerted effort uh, to get more Aboriginal people involved. Okay. So, you know, pulling every lever they can to deal with it. And then the other part that's interesting, um, packed construction is part of ABM Group. Now, in light of, uh, you know, the couple of big uh, collapses that we've seen in that area, uh, Pin Down and Jackson. Uh, you know, a lot of people will look at someone like Pact and say, well, you know, you're the next big one. You could be the next tier one construction company and take on Multiplex. Well, um, I think Dale's sort of a bit more astute than that. Yeah, it could, said, be the, could be the division that brings the company down. Exactly. He said, look, they're a leading tier two commercial construction company. You know, they get their projects up to about $100 million. And they're very selective. So they've got a nice niche, going to stick to it, and, uh, and and hopefully things will just keep on going well in that area. 
Yeah, fair enough. Okay. And they'll leave the multiplexes of the world to dominate the top of the market as they have always done. And that's one of those challenges in businesses, when to go for it and when to hold back. So, yeah, it's good business people work that out. And just for good measure. Yeah. He's also president of the Fremantle Dockers. Mm -hmm. He's got two more years as president. So like all Dockers fans, we live in hope that he'll uh, get a bit more on-field success in that time. Yes, well, living in hope. (laughs) All right, moving on. Um, Now, extraordinary news this week about the, well, we call it a unicorn, Canva, uh, which has some West Australian roots, but we'll go there in a minute. Uh, Now, they raised just US 200 million, I shouldn't say just, but giving it, and that gives the company a valuation of $40 billion. So I presume they raised half a percent of equity. Something like that. Uh, An extraordinary story, Mark. And set up by Melanie Perkins and Cliff Obrecht, who grew up in suburban Perth, and in fact had their first business here called Fusion Books, uh, which was about, basically it's graphic design software. Yeah. Um, Fusion Books was a way of helping schools create yearbooks. Yeah, that's right. Make it simple and easy. So Canva is an extension of that concept. Um, and in tandem with this announcement, uh, Melanie and Cliff and some of their other executives, for the first time ever, did a media briefing. So they had a, a Zoom conference call. Right. And so I sat in and listened to that, and it was really fascinating. Because, and I say this in a very respectful way, Melanie, who's chief executive, comes across as a lovely young woman who's really enthusiastic about graphic design, Mm. who also heads up a company that's worth 40 US billion dollars. And I think it's one of those examples where she's clearly very genuine and she's got a very clear focus on what Canva is all about. Um, and you know, it's revolutionising that design industry. Um, and they shared some numbers with us that they haven't put out before. Uh, they've got 60 million active users per month. Uh, that includes four and a half million paying customers. Yeah, right. Um, and that includes... So it's a freemium model, right? You and I sign up. We can do yep. a certain number of things for nothing, which where the obviously the... 55, part of the 55, if we were using it, we'd be the 55 million, and yep. then you've got nearly 5 million who pay that pro level because there are tools tools or an amount of usage that requires us to, you know, pay, but we're, we already believe in the product. Yep. That's, that's roughly it, yeah. But serious money coming in the door. Mm. Um, currently, um, if you annualise their monthly revenue, they've got annual revenue of 700 million US. By the end of the year they reckon they'll be on a billion US dollars. Mm-hmm. So okay. that's just extraordinary growth in just a few months. Uh, staff, they doubled their staff last year to 2,000, and they reckon they'll double it again in the coming year. More importantly, Mark, did they talk about profit? They said they've been in positive cash flow mm-hmm. for several years. Okay. Uh, and in fact, they said that they were, they didn't disclose the total amount of money they've raised, because, of course, it's all private. But they said that they're still sitting on the cash that they've previously raised. This new raising just means they can accelerate their growth, they can hire more staff, they can invest more in the business, and they can make more acquisitions. So it just gives them a lot of flexibility. Yeah. But the, 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 the tone of their commentary was that they're in a very comfortable financial position. And I don't doubt it. And I mean, the one thing about these businesses is that scalability that, you know, in the end... 
you know, you can you can always throw on a few more um, developers to keep adding tools. That's a fraction of the cost of a business of that scale. So really, you're, you're, um, the thing you're selling, you don't have to have a build a new factory and make another widget for every one you're selling. It, it, it's made, it's just a, it's, it's, a, it's an electronic, a digital product. I guess still though, you know, a billion dollars in turnover, you know, even if they're making half a, bit, half a billion in profit, a $40 billion valuation, it's 80 times. It's that's a big valuation. Is, that's just like some of those other valuations we've seen from Silicon Valley. Well, that's the tech world we're in. Yeah, yeah I know. I know, get it. And, and, and whether it's you know a new paradigm that lasts, or whether it uh, comes undone at some point. The other interesting part of the story, um, uh, Melanie and Cliff. I mean, they're both they were the co-founders. They're also a married couple, uh, so they've got a joint. They've retained a thirty percent shareholding in the business. Yep. Um, so collectively worth what sixteen billion Aussie, and they came out and said, "Look, they want to give away their money. Yeah, way more money than anybody could ever possibly need." Yep. Um, and Melanie made an interesting comment. She said she sees it as a huge responsibility that weighs really heavily on them um, as to what they do with this money. So they started off small. They've talked about a pledge to use money for alleviate, alleviating poverty in Africa. Um, but they're saying that it's the first step in what they see as a very long journey. So that'll be an interesting one to watch. Um, they've set up a foundation. Um, interestingly, you know, Perth Connection, local law firm Jackson McDonald, helped them set up the foundation. Mm, okay. um, and so I suspect we'll be seeing a lot more um, activity on that front as well. Mm. Well, that's what I do too, Mark. That's what I plan to do when I make a few billion. So absolutely. Um, good on them. Right. Now, look, very different story here, Mark. Um, the big four accounting firm, KPMG, has disciplined 17% of staff over, were well, effectively cheating on tests. And this is internationally or nationally? Uh, no, this is Australia. Just Australia. Yeah, yep. right. I was, wasn't sure about that. Um, yeah, look, this is a... Um, <laughs> Another, an extraordinary story in a very different way. Uh, this was part of their internal staff development. Um, and one part of it was, particularly for auditors, you know, one of the tests is how do you define independence? Um, yeah, a theme we've discussed in a very different context around the uh, Crown Royal Commission. Yeah. Um, but it's a pretty fundamental point if you're a business advisor, and in particular, if you're an auditor about being independent from your clients. So there are tests that they did, and they discovered that uh, a lot of people were sharing the results of these tests. Mm. Now, this is something that school kids get in trouble for. University students. And university students. And here we are seeing people at KPMG doing it. So 1,131 people were disciplined over this. Uh, That included uh, 46 people who were told that there would be remuneration consequences. That included 16 partners. And in fact, two partners departed the firm as a result of the investigation. And there's a group in the US, the Public Company Accounting Oversight Board. They actually brought this to public attention because they released an announcement during the week saying that they were imposing a fine of $450,000 US on KPMG Australia. Hmm. Um, and requiring them to take remedial action. Uh, The response includes 
internal integrity training, telling people the blindingly obvious that you can't share answers to tests. Mm. So it's a yeah, it's a pretty poor situation. I know for a major professional services firm and audit of all places to be doing that stuff, it's not great. Um, do we know? Was there much of that in WA, or we don't really know? Look, there wasn't any sort of breakdown at that level. Um, you'd have to assume, given the scale of it, that it was probably across the country. Yeah, yeah, right. Um, but look, um, clearly very embarrassing for the firm. Uh, but they've come out and said, look, you know, we screwed up, but we've put in place systems to make sure it doesn't happen again. Yeah. Well, there you go. I mean, look, I know plenty of people who do or have worked at KPMG and it's always hard to imagine but I guess it's probably it's one of those things it becomes a bit cultural doesn't it oh yeah it doesn't matter that much we're just moving on and not realising exactly what you know the point of all these things are for uh, Mark uh, good news for the WA economy nation's best employment stats and we've even got some population growth is that right modest population growth right okay um, but we're doing better than the rest of the country yeah right because no yeah. immigrants can come into the country that's right <laughs> Uh, so look, over the last year, um, the national population grew by just under 0.1%. Um, last time that happened was in the uh, depths of World War I. Um, Western Australia, by contrast, grew by 0.6%. Um, little number for the next time you had a quiz night. WA's population, 2.67 million people. Mm-hmm. Interesting... Within those numbers, you know, most of the growth was from natural increase, uh, births over deaths. But Western Australia has had growth over the past three quarters from interstate migration. Last time that happened was back in 2013, yeah. the last mining construction boom. Yeah. You know, when we had that huge influx of people from other states. You know, traditionally, we lose people year in, year out, yeah. leaving WA and going interstate. That's reversed. So, look, you know... That's um, encouraging. Whether it stays that way will remain to be seen. And also, look on the employment front, uh, traditionally, we focused on the unemployment rate, but it's become increasingly clear that that's a very poor measure of what's going on in the labour market. Much more focused now on things like total employment in WA, up 0.9%. Um, hours worked, WA, up 1.6%. New South Wales down 6.5%. Mm, um, participation rate. So this is the percentage of the working age population that are either in work or looking for work. Western Australia, it's way higher than any other state. Mm. Um, and similarly, underemployment. So look, a whole range of measures there, but they all tell us that we've got a, a strong labour market in WA and the economy is tracking nicely compared to the rest of the country. Stats telling us what we already know. <laughs> yeah, no, good good to know. Uh, Mark uh, Bosselton had a couple of big announcements during the week, um, about 70 million in new infrastructure. So two projects progressing there. One of them is a performing arts centre, going to cost about $38 million. This one's been quite contentious because the cost of it has actually increased substantially from what had previously been expected. Um, There's some money coming in from the federal government to help pay for it, but the local councils had to do a a bunch of other things to to pay for it. In fact, there was um, some independent research done which found a majority of people were opposed to the Performing Arts Centre. 
And I know there was one, a big one built down in Albany. And yeah. the issue there is, like, like all infrastructure, once you build it, you've got to maintain it yeah. and fill it up. Keep it, yeah. Um, keep it. Make it pay for itself and make it pay for its maintenance, yeah. Yeah. So, look, City of Bustle, sorry, the, the council at Bunbury has decided to, um, sorry, Bustleton has decided to go ahead with this one. Mm-hmm. And then the other one is uh, down at the jetty, plans for a quite spectacular looking marine observatory cost of 32 million dollars so another very big project this one's backed by a not-for-profit bustleton jetty inc just looking at the drawings i encourage people to (laughs) do a little search and pull up our article yeah and the the building is shaped like a whale yeah Um, breaching Away, all breaching of now, I don't, water. Mark, I don't know if that's, you know, a vision plan or if that's really the plan. I'm, I'm not 100% sure about that, are you? Uh, well, look, there's often a mismatch between the drawings that you see and the final product, but yeah. I believe that is yeah, it's right, going okay. to look like it's going it's to be good. fabricated at Henderson and towed down there and installed. So you'll be able to sort of walk inside there. There'll be sort of cafes and, and you know, it's not... Much bigger than a, than a normal sort of underwater observatory. Yeah, right. Um, and you'll, there'll be fish swimming around and. Yeah. Well, I've done I've done a bit of diving off that uh, jetty in the last few years, and it's uh, it's a great spot, and there is really stuff to see down there. So um, you know, good on them. Uh, I imagine there'll be a bit of disruption whilst it takes place, and uh, but but I do love that. You do need those iconic things. Um, and I think Bustleton Jetty on its own is iconic. It's very popular. This just would give it another little something and give tourists reason to go there when we can get some, especially uh, some foreign tourists back. And I think it would be a rare example of something that warrants use of that word, iconic. Yeah, you're quite right. Uh, and also the jetty needs to be, you know, they've got to maintain the jetty and, and this gets back to that maintenance side. You, you, you know, you need enough of a draw card that people go there and spend money there so that, because otherwise, you know, we've seen what happened in Esperance when it was just a jetty and it didn't, it didn't, it didn't survive. Um, now, Mark, uh, in a special report out in the magazine next week, Matt McKenzie is looking at uh, energy and the future of coal. Coal provides about forty percent of Western Australia's power. Uh, the other big source, of course, is gas, and then some renewables on top of that. And it's an industry facing some really serious issues. Uh, there are two coal mines down at Collie. Uh, one of them, uh, Griffin, uh, was owned by an Indian group that got itself into all sorts of financial strife. The parent company, in fact, is in receivership. So this asset effectively is controlled by the banks. Uh, they went into a force majeure uh, last year because uh, they couldn't deliver the coal as expected. Um, you know, the quality of the coal deposits down there has, has declined over time. You know, they've dug up the good quality um, deposits. Um, and then even the second group, Premier Coal, that's owned by a Chinese group, they're in a better state at the moment, but the Muja power station, um, Muja C, is due to shut down. So that'll have a significant impact on Premier. So there's a real, Matt goes into the real detail here about the challenges that we're going to encounter yeah. about um, ensuring the viability of coal supply whilst it continues to be a significant source of energy for the state. Yeah. And it's a big challenge. Yeah, and absolutely. And of course, you know, a big challenge for that Collie community because they've got to reinvent themselves. 
um, yeah, it's quite a big one. All right, Mark, we'll look, uh, look forward to that, the magazine out on Monday. Thanks for all that. For our subscribers only, MyBN puts you in control of the information you choose to consume and when you choose to consume it. You can follow organisations, people, lists and projects, and you can receive alerts when there is an update on anything you follow. You can save articles to read later and follow news by sector, creating a news feed focused on your interests. MyBN is the only platform of its kind within WA. Hope you enjoyed this podcast and thanks for listening. Thanks for listening to Mark My Words with Mark Powell and Mark Bayer from Business News. For more information, please go to businessnews.com.au forward slash podcasts. And to receive these regularly, search for Business News WA in iTunes or SoundCloud.